everyone. Welcome to JCV Art Studio Season 6. My name is Joanna and I've been checking, you know me, I've been checking my analytics and hello Iowa. I see you. I see the numbers. Thank you for tuning in. Iowa, Vermont, Virginia, Alabama, hello and uh, welcome Washington State and California. It's nice it's nice to see the map of the United States. And so you guys know with my analytics, the map of all the states are grayed out. And then as listeners come on board, they, the states, these color blocks come on. So you can imagine as an artist, I'm like, how? Oh! <laughs> right? So welcome. Welcome to JCV Art Studio. Um, my name is Joanna, for, and I will say for first-time listeners, and I am the author of The Unraveling and Dealer's Child, and March 2024, Spy Girls will be out. Today is going to be a really cool podcast. It is the fourth in a series of podcasts I'm doing in my capacity as the official podcast host for the 2022 Canadian Book Club Award winners. And I'm going to call this episode Star the Star and Mangoes episode and, and you'll you'll hear why. Today we are talking with poet Natasha Silva. She is the author of the award-winning book North Star Heart and Isis Maria Henriquez the author of Mangoes and Snowflakes. As I mentioned, they're, both their books were winners of the 2022 Canadian Book Club Awards in their categories. Natasha and, I, and Isis, welcome. I'm so curious to talk with you today. Hi. I'm so okay. happy to be here. Okay, you so guys are there. Here today. We're here. <laughs> good, good, good. A question for both of you. Um, and I'm always curious, I know why I like to write, but I'm always curious why others like to write. So what triggered, we're going to get right into this, what triggered each of you to write? Natasha, what triggered you to write North Star Heart and Isis Mangoes and, Sto Mangoes and Snowflake? So that, Natasha, let us know, what made you write North Star Heart? Yeah, well, I had always wanted to be an author. That dream started in elementary school, and I've written stories since I was a kid. I began writing poetry around the age of 12, 13, and it's been one of my primary genres ever since. The idea for North Star Heart came to me in 2019, in my last year of my creative writing degree. I was planning on doing four chapbooks, and this was meant to be the first one. But I quickly realized that North Star Heart was destined to be a bigger volume than a chapbook and was deserving of being its own full-length collection. The moment I realized this book was meant to be a book was on a solo trip I took to Smithers, BC in December of 2019. I had written the first poem of North Star Heart a year prior to that trip when I was feeling very lost in my life. And in my three days up north, almost everything I'd written in that poem a year previously came true. It was a profound journey for me, and I hadn't been expecting that. I wrote almost a third of the book in the short time I was up there, and when I had returned home, I had already laid out the roadmap for how the rest of the book was going to look. Right. Isis, Mangoes and Snowflakes. We have two different 
books here. So uh, this is going to be interesting. Very different. Mm-hmm. Very, very different. Um, similar to Natasha, I was, you know, I always love literature. I always love storytelling. And for me, this actually started when I was really little. little. I was in elementary and I was obsessed with reading everything. And here in Canada, I was reading out in Green Gables and, you know, uh, Lucy Maud Montgomery, anything I can get my hands on. And then one day um, in 1992, my dad decided to drive us all the way down to El Salvador. And when I got down there, I heard so many, like my little mind just melted with all the stories that I was hearing that I had no idea even existed. It was a completely different world and it was a completely different culture. And it's the first time that I actually had a little taste of, you know, the civil war that would become like the heart of my 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 novel um and just being able to experience a little bit of it and hear all these stories I came back and I was like I want to know all of them and I want to share all these stories and uh it was really interesting because I came back to uh elementary class and my teacher did you know the usual everybody write a story about what you did over the summer and that's when I was like oh boy do I have a story for you (laughs) so I actually wrote about my trip about El Salvador and and everything I had learned and she enjoyed it so much that she submitted it to a children magazine and it was published and that's when I was I was hooked as a writer I was like I have to tell these stories I have to more than anything give voice to these victims to the survivors that you know a lot of people didn't know existed and hadn't been heard and so then what followed was a lifetime of um just chipping away at it and research and finding a way to combine all of these stories in a very honest way. I really, for me, my motivation was always um, doing their stories justice. So Awesome. Okay. Well, I'm going to start with Natasha's bio. And Natasha is a dual citizen of Portugal and Canada. She graduated from UBC's School of Creative Writing. And she's an avid lover of the outdoors. It was through the Langley Fine Arts School where she began writing. And her passion to write has grown ever since. Now, Natasha, actually, I've got another question here. I find I was in the Simon Fraser's writer studio. And that was such a cool experience. So I'm I'm thinking was the UBC school of I'm I'm just veering off on a bit of a tangent here. How was the UBC School of Creative Writing? How was that? I absolutely loved my experience with the UBC School of Creative Writing. It's an amazing program. It offers 13 different genres that you can take workshops in, which is massive. Yeah. And I just found every single class, every professor was so encouraging and wanted to help push you to become a better writer and your stories or your poetry to become better but in a way that you know was positive and uplifting because a lot of writing programs and and workshops they can turn very negative very quickly and I found UBC did a really good job of actually being an amazing space to grow and to become better in that positive way good good that was the same with um the writer studio and I did grow, and I feel I'm a better writer 
And it, it, I'm finding I am noticing things now that I never noticed before. Right. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Joe, back to the program. Okay. So now, <laughs> so to you, Natasha, what does North Star symbolize? Yeah. So in my book, well, the, the North Star anyway, it's, it's often a symbol of direction, of finding one's way, and usually referred to in a navigational way. However, I kind of twisted that a little bit with the idea of a North Star heart and us having our own North Stars living within our chests as our hearts do, there to guide us to where we're meant to be, whether that's a destination or a spiritual connection, a shift in mentalities, or even an important relationship that may not have been forged yet. Um, These needs of these North Star hearts, they can be intense, they can be confusing, they can be very visceral, but when heated, lead to the most rewarding journeys of self-discovery. These North Star hearts can also take us on journeys that reveal not only the nature of the outside world, but also the nature that guides who we are. I've found that they are strongest intuition, and they can also provide the most clarity upon arrival to the places we're truly meant to be. Oh, that's cool. Because as you're saying that, I'm thinking about Isis's book as well. You're talking when you're talking about journeys. Um, now, do you believe that a person? Okay, I'll, I'll, the reason why I'm, go- I'm asking this is because for three months I worked in a bakery. Okay, so I worked 33 years for the provincial government in the Ministry of Attorney General, and I and I retired, and I'd been retired for about a year. And I was still, I knew I wanted to do more writing, but then at one point, it's like I needed, um, I don't want to say I needed structure, but maybe I needed some structure, but I got a job working for three months at a bakery, which was actually really cool. Okay. And uh, I'm no longer there, but I feel more focused now on what I do with my writing. So that's why I was wondering, do you believe that a person needs to take a detour from their path to get a clearer understanding of what they their true path is? Mm-hmm. I think it really depends on the person. Um, I think, you know, like for a case like yours, you had been doing the one thing for a long time and you needed that kind of shift to, to see what's next. Yeah. Um, so I think in those ways, detours can be incredible. I think uh, sometimes if you're super in tune with your own intuition, uh, they may not be necessary or people may take them as a purposeful distraction to avoid their path. Okay. Um, but I also think that people who are maybe just confused or not as in tune, they need them because then they can affirm their own instincts and, okay, that was the wrong move or that was the right move. Yeah. Okay. And ISIS, if at any time you want to jump in, okay? <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 And the same with you, Natasha, right? This is, these questions aren't strictly for, you know, if, if, because I've had that with other um, podcasts, group podcasts where um, others have said, you know, I'd, if I could just jump in, right? Okay. Now, ISIS, your bio, ISIS Maria Henriquez comes from a Sal- Salvadorian family. She was born in Guadalajara, Mexico, 
and grew up in Canada. At the age of seven, I love this. Her parents pile talk about going on a family vacation. <laughs> You're not going to Dino Town, anyways. No. That was my life. Okay, here we go. And um, at the eight, that's what we did for our kids. Okay, so <laughs> at the age of seven, her parents piled the family into a baby blue 1977 Dodge van and drove from Edmonton, Alberta, to San Salvador, El Salvador. Fascinated by the experience, she knew that the journey marked the beginning of her life as an educator, traveler, and storyteller. Her first novel, Mangoes and Snowflakes, is an unconventional novel that tells the silenced stories of the victims of the Salvadorian Civil War and provides a multi-generational connection between those who were lost, those who survived, and those who are the fruit of the fight for survival. Isis, I am not going to look at mangoes the same anymore after reading your story, which mm -hmm. is actually really cool. So many things, I won't say trigger me, but I are, are bring back memories of, from interviewing authors on this podcast. So was there any scene in that book that was difficult to write? Because I, I think of some of the the opening scenes in there. Yeah. So one thing I do have to mention is that about 90, 95% of my novel is based on true stories of my family. So yeah, the opening scene, for example, Esmeralda is based on my grandmother. And that actually happened to her being locked up in a, I try not to give away too many spoilers, being locked up in a shack and going through horrific, horrific domestic abuse. Um, so all of that, minus a few nuances that I had to kind of tie the stories together with, um, they're all true. So for me, there were so many scenes that were difficult to write when I got really serious about, you know, really putting the book together and, and finally getting it published. I actually, I'm a high school teacher. So I took seven months off to just punch it out. And I traveled all over the world and would just sit in cafes in Asia and Europe and, and get it done. And I can't tell you how many times I was sitting there by myself, just blubbering, just crying. Because I'm like, this is so hard to write. But I really, really wanted to capture the violence they went through, the, the resilience that they demonstrated, the love that they were capable of, like, I really wanted to do it justice. So there were quite a few scenes that were difficult, but I think ultimately the most difficult, which is also the point I really wanted to get across in my novel was that loss of innocence. You know, in any war, it's so tragic, it's so violent, it's so horrific what humans can really do uh, to one another, but the loss of children and, and what they go through. I think that's that's the absolute most difficult. Even right now, I get a little choked up, you know, thinking about the ending of my of my novel and, and the story that's intertwined throughout and what war does to children. I think that's the most, oh, heartbreaking to write and to read and to learn about for sure. Well, it's so relevant to today. Like mm -hmm. I think yeah. of Ukraine. Yeah. The children in Ukraine. Yeah. They are growing up with such a different yeah. lifestyle, yeah. right? Than I did, than any, any, anyone, any, you know. So, okay, okay, okay. So, Isis, how about if you? I'm just going to mute myself. If you would like to give us like a short reading from your book, Mango, Mangoes okay. and Snowflakes. 
So I thought I would start um, with actually the first passage. So um, for those who haven't read my book, um, I have bookends. So my first chapter is called Mangles. My last chapter is called Snowflakes. It's told from one perspective that you don't really get to figure out until the very end. And the rest of the book is told from another perspective. Uh, so I thought I'd start with Mangles because I grew up listening to stories of my, my mom. All of this are stories from my mom of what she did with the mangoes and how she loved climbing mango trees and all of that. So it's a, it's a chapter very close to my heart. So I thought I'd read that. All right, here we go. Mangoes. I can't remember the last mango I ate before I died. I've tried so hard to remember. I didn't live long after all. So there isn't too much to remember. I seem to remember everything else, but not that, not the last mango I ate. I remember the mango trees. I love climbing them, even though I only ever managed to climb as high as my dad lifted me. I remember trying to grip onto the trunk. Its sun-kissed brown bark reminded me of my dad's chapped hands. The grooves, spots, and endless tiny crevices made me want to embrace the entire trunk as if I was hugging Mother Nature herself. My tiny arms never made it around the trunk, so instead I'd grab the nearest branch and my dad would let me go. Sometimes I'd swing there for a moment, dancing with the tree. We hummed along with the nearby volcano and smiled with the winds from the ocean. Sometimes I managed to climb onto the branch. The long green leaves with their yellow veins extended out to me, welcoming me into their evergreen sanctuary. The mangles dangled from the branches, colorful tropical treats swaying in the breeze. Sometimes the mangles were green, hard as rocks. My face would pucker with every sour bite, and my dad would chuckle as my face distorted. He would sprinkle, sprinkle the mangles with hot sauce and salt so I could savor my scrumptious fruity treats. Sometimes the mangles were the colors of the sunset, vibrant red, sleepy orange, and a streak of yellow. When the mangles were this colorful, my mouth instantly watered because I knew they would melt in my mouth. Floral, sweet, delicious. I remember my favorite part of the harvest season. Smile and wipe away my escaping drool. I'm not going to lie. When the odd ripe mango fell from the tree, I'd hurry, peel it, and devour it before I had a chance to bruise. But during harvest season, I'd patiently wait for all the mangoes to be properly plucked from the tree. Then me and my dad would make my absolute favorite, mango marmalade. As we boiled the mangoes with a sprinkle of cinnamon, the sweet aroma would engulf the small room in which we lived. My mouth watered and my heart filled with joy. We added whole cane sugar, stirred it, and let it cool. My dad had to hold me back because all I wanted to do was stick my head in the pot and lick it clean. The memory alone was enough to make my stomach rumble, and soon I was asking my dad to help me down from the tree. He'd always joke, of course, pretending to leave me up in the tree forever. He was never one to be serious for long or ever. Both of us would laugh as he joked about leaving me in the tree. I knew he never would, though. He always took care of me. It was never long before he stepped back under me, gently bringing me down and placing me on the ground. I would dig my bare feet into the ground and wiggle my toes, finding my balance once more. I'd feel the grumble of the volcano in my baby toes, like the earth itself was tickling my feet, making me giggle. Sometimes standing on the earth would hurt. I couldn't explain it, but I'd feel the streams of blood, the unheard cries, the broken spirits. I'd lie on the ground, my heart beating against the earth. I didn't know why at first, but my eyes always watered and the odd tear would trickle down to the earth, slowly making its way to the Rio Lempa. 
with the help of the tropical storms. I love the storms, especially the nighttime storms. It was as if the rain brought everything to life, even if not right away. The raindrops danced on the cardboard roofs and turned the dusty roads into streams. I love squishing the mud between my toes. The lightning made the ivory moon even brighter. And somehow it bring up all the smells, the salty smell of the ocean, the earthly smell of wet grass, the sooty smell of smoldering fire pits. The nights were loud and clacking, but they would rock me to sleep, silencing the gunfire. After the rain, the morning sun would begin its fierce rebuttal and attempt to shine through, but I would find refuge under the leaves of the mango tree. Its shade refreshed my skin and cooled my spirit. I leaned against the sturdy trunk and listened to the melody of the wind among the swaying branches. I could almost hear the decades of laughter and childhood games and the cracking of necks that were hanged on its branches. I remember all of that, but I can't remember the last mango I ate. I remember the swinging back and forth between meaningless tragedies and empty dreams. I remember the pangs of hunger and the cold nights in the jungle. I remember wading through blood and dead bodies. I remember running on the crumbling earth and through gunfire, but I can't remember the last mango I ate. Oh, gosh, that's really good. And as you're reading, I couldn't, uh, Natasha, I was thinking about you because I've been, your poems, when Isis is talking about the trees and the barks, and I'm thinking of your poems, and I thought, oh, man, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Isis, thank you. Thank you. So when your book came out, what was the reception from your family? How did your family feel with you writing about your your family's history and, and what they went through and also what the people of El Salvador went through. Right. It's it was a big responsibility. I knew that right from the get-go, you know, when I first started writing it. Um so I went to them before I even really had a, a rough draft. I I went to my whole family. I told them, you know, I would love to mostly my parents, um I would love to tell these stories, but they're yours. Yeah. And so if you want to tell them and I help or, you know, I, I want to be in, like as respectful as I possibly can with these stories. And the reception I got was nothing but love and generosity. They said, you've been the writer since you were a kid. Yeah. We love that. We want to get these stories out there. So go ahead and do it. And they were there with me every step of the way, every, every story, every time I asked them to tell me again. And, you know, when I would read it to them and they'd give me feedback, they were, I couldn't have done it clearly without them. And, and they were there with me every step of the way. So when it was finally published, I, I really truly felt as if it was a family thing. We, we got it done and we, we got it published. And, and so they were just really excited. And I think they're, it's hard for me to even say it because I don't want to take props for it, but I think they were generally, genuinely just very proud and and grateful that the stories are out there. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Natasha, can you tell us, I'm thinking of your poems, the overarching theme or message you wish to convey with the poems in North Star Heart. I'm thinking about... Isis is reading, and I'm thinking of the poems I of yours that I've read, and I really got a sense of nature and how much you appreciate nature. And 
So yeah, yeah. What, what, what tell us what if if there was a, a a theme with with your poetry? Yeah, for sure. So North Star Heart, I designed for it to be kind of this narrative for the search of personal identity and ultimately the meaning of home and what that stands for. And the the common thread of the imagery I chose to do that with was nature and kind of playing with this idea of the nature inside ourselves and the nature in the world and how do those interact to for us finding ourselves and in our homes. And so I designed the book to, to go through challenging seasons of life without shying away from dark or light. So part one features darker emotions and adversities that come when you truly do feel lost in yourself and in the world. Part two then invites readers into a season of acceptance and realization of who they are and what they need and deserve. And finally, part three ushers in the light and there's distinct feelings of hope and excitement for the future. Okay, cool. Now, could you please read one, like one of your poems or two of your poems? Would I'd love to hear them. Sure, um, I can read this one. It's called "From the Girl Who Loves the Forest More Than Herself." It's the forest I tell my graveyard secrets to. The trees gather the words in the folds of their branches. Pass them from cedar to Douglas fir to pine. The mountain peaks draw energy from the darkest parts of me, transform marred memories to ones of bliss, and uplift me to cumulus cloud status. The vistas manipulate heartbeats. They speed up so fast I can fly almost as high as the whiskey jacks on Cyprus. The sun sets over the valley, the blue of the Fraser, iridescent, against the dying light. The breeze blows my secrets through the evergreens, and that burning sky tattoos the tree line to my retinas. These secrets won't die with me. I love it. I love it. And it's interesting because I was going to read a poem, and that was one of the ones I had printed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd like to read one of your poems. I may not read it as well as you, but... Um, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a try. And I had scribbled down a question too. Another question I'd like to ask you. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of listeners in the Southern states. And one that one of many of your poems that jumped out at me was Tennessee Date Night. Okay. So Tennessee Date Night. Banjo twangs jumpstart me into black leather. Boots pointed toes dancing shoes, fireballs tucked against my shin, sloshes with every two-step spin, felt hat-clad cowboy with a whiskey flask, peeking above a wrangler waistband, offers a hand and we start. Little step, bigger step, he guides me in a circle, pulls, pulls close when the fiddle squeals, Pushes far when the harmonica flutters, reels me back, quick spin, big deep, and repeat. The crowd shifts, we rush, to find our own spaces in the last row of this country line dance floor. Refresh ourselves with the fireball, in my boot, alternate with his whiskey, passing bottles on each rotation. 
My vision blurs, the fiddle sings, clad arms link out the barn doors, and the banjo echoes down the dirt road home. I love that one. I, after like that, is it the stanza? The second stanza? Is that what you? Okay. Where it reels me back, quick spin, big dip and repeat. I could just see when I was reading that, right? I thought, ah, I could see this, you know. <laughs> the question that kind of just came to me was, how do you start? Now, this is going to sound like a very basic, but how do you start a poem? Um, is it a feeling? Is it, I'm sure you, the inspiration is probably like everything with writing. I mean, I'm just, you know, I get an idea. I see something on TV. I write fiction. Okay. So is it the same? Like you see something on TV or you see something in the forest or you see something like uh, 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 my hydrangeas. I've been blown away by the color of the hydrangeas. So how do you start? Yeah, there can be many different ways I start. Sometimes I'm just out for a walk and a line pops into my head. Sometimes it's listening to music. Um, often, um, I mean, sometimes the lines are just, they're in my head and they start coming out and I will just write off of those. Or um, if like when I was doing this book, there was certain parts I was like, okay, like I need something that's a little bit lighter. Like, And so I would be like, okay, this is my theme I have to work off of. And and sometimes, you know, it begins with an image and then we build a poem around that. So there's many different ways that I start poems or get inspiration for poems. Cool. cool. Okay. I have a question for both of you. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. So I believe with your backgrounds, I get a sense that stories have been passed down through generations. Both of you like to write as a child, and it sounds like you were encouraged, which is fantastic. Um, do both of you, again, correct me if I'm wrong, have a, have, do you have a deeper understanding of freedom or a deeper appreciation of what we have as Canadians um, than, let's say, the average Canadian. Uh, and the reason why I'm coming up with this question is I remember my mom, she immigrated to Canada just after the First World War. She left her city of Budapest, Hungary, with the clothes on her back. Okay. And as a child, I remember her telling me, um, you know, if I'd be complaining about something, she'd be like, you have nothing to complain about. You don't know how good you have it here. Um, you know, you've got, and it was just basically like, you have clothes on your back, you have a roof over your head, you have food on the table. Like, it, it would always be, you know, there are other people in this world who are starving, you know, like she would put me in my spot, like you have nothing to complain about. And I could see <laughs> you two are like nodding your heads, right? What do you think? What do you think of my statement? Natasha, what do you think? Yeah, I think um, when you grow up in an immigrant family, there's a lot of differences between your family and maybe other multi-generational Canadian ones. For me, my grandparents on both sides of the family immigrated to Canada 
for a better life, like many Europeans did. Um, they left Europe behind. They were some of the very first of their families to even move out of their hometown, much less half the world away. My parents came with the, uh, their respective parents as young children, and they also faced a lot of adjustment and hard work to build a life here. My sister and I grew up hearing stories of how hard it was initially, how hard my grandparents worked in order to begin to pave a way for the life that we have here now. And they did have a better life here. There was a lot of bad economic things happening in Europe at the time. The war had ended not too long ago. Um, but that better life here didn't come without a lot of sacrifice. And their tenacity to work hard and to never give up has carried through our family line. You know, we've learned to have our European culture, but also exist within Canadian culture and society. And so I think in that way, when you've had close members of your family go through a lot of hard things, you can really see the difference between different uh, countries and cultures that way. So I don't know that Canadians necessarily don't know how good they have it. I think many do, but many also lack a direct context of what other places are like or have been like because they don't have that close relative that's directly been through those things. That's a great answer. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Isis, what do you think? I'm, you're, you, I could see your head nodding too. <laughs> the whole time, that question. Oh my goodness, that that was my entire childhood. Hearing, you know, both my parents say exactly what you said. You can't, you can't complain. You yeah. you have food and a roof over your head, and you can't complain. And and it was interesting because when I was little, I was maybe a little rebellious. Like it was the 80s, 90s. So I was like, oh, whatever, mom. You're not, you know, because I would go to school and I'm like, but I have less than yeah. most Canadian kids. You know, we had just come to Canada as refugees. We were, you know, um, living in Edmonton housing and going to the food bank and things like that. Very humble beginnings. And um, so I was like, what do you mean? I have a lot to complain about. What are you talking about? Yeah. And again, it was that that pivotal trip down to El Salvador. I mean, like I was seven, I'm, I'm, that was 32 years ago now. And I still remember driving the van to the border. And while I'm waiting for my parents to check us in, the van was swarmed. I mean, swarmed with street kids. And they were banging on the windows and just begging. And I, I went to my mom and said, what? what's happening? What, are, what is wrong with them? What are, what are they doing? She's like, well, they're starving. They haven't eaten. Yeah. And I was like, what do you, oh my gosh. Like it just, again, it just melted my little mind. And I remember I had a little treat bag from the dollar store, which is, you know, jawbreakers and whatnot. So I was like, here guys. And I just started handing them out. And I kid you not, by the end of the trip, I'd, I, I came back to Canada with just the outfit I was wearing because when I saw what kids were going through there, I started handing everything out. They they were amazed with my Barbies. And I was like, of course you can have it, you know? And I will never, ever, ever forget that because I did come back and, you know, as much as my parents reminded me of everything I had, they didn't have to because I was very much aware of every bite of food and, you know, how warm I was in my home and, and more than anything, how I would see the fruits of my labor. If I worked hard, I could succeed. Whereas, you know, back home, that's not a possibility for many people. So yeah. I think, I think the very big difference here is between knowing, because, you know, the same as, as what Natasha mentioned, it's not that Canadians take it for granted by any means. I think a lot of them know 
how fortunate we are to live here. But there's a difference between knowing and feeling it. I think once you lose that freedom, once you lose comfort and stability and um, safety, I think once you lose that, you know what that feels like. Then when you go back to it, you know, that was my experience. Then, then I know that I'm very lucky, but I also feel it every day. feel it in my my day-to-day which you know others might not but um I think that's that's the most pitiful lesson it wasn't just you know be grateful for what you have I know in my heart that I'm I I live in a wonderful wonderful country with many many opportunities and I'm forever grateful well and even recently seeing the forest fires in BC and Northwest Territories, but in Kelowna, and just, uh, I swear, and I'm just, I'm choking up now, turning on the news and seeing people losing their homes. And I'm, I've, you know, I remember I saw one lady and she said, yeah, we've lost our home. She goes, but we're alive, you know? And I'm just like, I'm like, I, I I swear for a week I'm like watching the news and I'm just grabbing the tissues, you know, and it just if my heart goes out to everyone in BC, the Yukon, who have been surviving the forest fires that we just had. Another question I have for both of you is what do you hope readers will come away with? After reading your books, after reading your poems, Natasha, after reading your story, Isis. So, Natasha, what do you th- what do you want your your readers to come away? Yeah, um, well, I think that readers will come away with a deeper appreciation for the nature around them. I hope that they've related to individual poems and maybe found parts of themselves within the pages. Um, And I hope that they're left with the idea that there's always hope within our futures and always light left to shine, even when they've been in a dark place for a while. And I have had a few like feedback from people at performances or who have bought my books and they've reached out. So it's helped a few different readers who've been on journeys of grief and they've reached out to express how much those poems meant to them. I had another reader tell me that my book transported him back to his child house in a hundred his sorry, his childhood in a hundred mile house, and that I had captured the feeling of the area prior to the major wildfires that have since impacted our Caribouch Colton region. And so I designed my book to be approachable for people who are new to reading poetry. And also it has hidden nuances for those who are a more experienced poetry reader. So I'm hoping that readers can also walk away with a greater appreciation for the genre on all ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I don't write poetry, but I, like I said, I, I got such a sense of nature and I thought, this is really cool. <laughs> okay. This is really cool. And then like the one I read, Tennessee Dance, I thought this is our Tennessee date night. I thought, this is really, really like, just, I like the visuals. I like, I'm a visual reader. That one's you a know, fun one. Yeah. You know, yeah. felt hat clad cowboy with a whiskey flask. I can see it, right? Isis. So what do you hope people come away with after reading your book? It's interesting because when I was putting it together, my hope was simply to 
uh, well, maybe not simply, but <laughs> to raise awareness about El Salvador is the tiniest, it is the smallest country in Central America. Many don't know it exists. And in spite of its size, it has such an intense, extensive and violent past that I wanted to share. But more, again, for the victims and survivors of the war, I really wanted to give them their voice and I wanted those stories to be heard. Um, so I'm hoping readers walk away with a little more um, education or experience with um, El Salvador, or even in a broader sense with Latin America. Um, but also as I get more feedback now and reviews and whatnot, I am astounded with but also so happy with the amount of people that are relating to it from all around the world i had someone reach out from romania and they were they were like we read your book and it was like speaking to our past and what they had gone through and and what they had dealt with and and the fact that they connect in that way was really special to me so i think ultimately i hope that they find an experience within my book where they connect to that human spirit, that that human resiliency in, in any tragedy and any dark and violent space, and and hopefully find you know some strength and some hope in in even the dream of survival and the dream of of surviving something like that. You know, it's interesting because you two are two different genres, but I feel there are similarities in sense of like the compassion, the connection, you know, the hope. That's mm. what I think is really cool. You know, th- that, yeah, that's, that's really cool. Okay. So just a couple more questions. Wrapping this up a bit here. I thought of one more question, the most basic question, which I've asked everyone who's been on like a panel like this. How did it feel? How did it feel when you found out you won the Canadian Book Club Award? So, I, Isis, how did it feel? <laughs> when she saw my face, it was like that. I was, I was completely, completely shocked. I, I, you hope, but you know, you don't try to get too excited. And and so I was groggy and still half asleep when I got the email with my dogs, and I think I shouted enough to scare them both, like out the door. <laughs> It was, oh, it was very, very, so I was so excited and just the idea of just other readers reading my book and voting on it, it was so exciting. And, and I feel like I, I felt uh, that validation of, you know, I did tell those human, those raw human stories that other humans can relate to and, and, and connect with. So that was, that was very, very special. And I loved it. I loved it. (laughs) Good. Natasha, how did you feel? Yeah, I was totally surprised as as well. Um, I mean, this year was the biggest year yet for the Canadian Book Club Awards, right? The largest number of submissions in every category, the largest number of readers signed up to choose winners. So just to be chosen as a finalist was already such an honor. And then to be chosen by as the winner from the readers of Canada was just incredible. Like this was a passion project for me. And now it's grown into something bigger, something people of all ages and backgrounds have connected to. And so that was just absolutely amazing and mind-blowing for me. And just, yeah, a huge honor to be chosen. Yeah. Okay. After writing these books, what's next? What's what's what what's next for you, Natasha? I mean, yeah, I. I think I would love to write another book. 
Um, although I haven't decided yet if it's going to be fiction or poetry. Okay. Okay. Do you think, gosh, you said fiction. Do you think you could have a little bit of poetry in a fiction book? In some ways, yes. Like when yeah. I do fiction, I do a lot of uh, imagistic fiction. So okay. I I really like um, just like, you know, poetry is is written images. I like to include kind of that sort of style in my fiction writing as well. Cool. All right. Isis, what's next? Oh, I really, really hope to get my second book out as well. Um, in writing Mangles and Snowflakes and learning about my parents' past and the realities of the war and things like that, it strangely or surprisingly helped me really understand my identity as a refugee's daughter in Canada. It was really confusing for a really long time. You know, um, you have the two identities and the two cultures and, you know, sometimes, especially when there's a lack of education there, there, you can get lost in that limbo between both worlds. Right. And so when I wrote Mangoes and Snowflakes, I got to learn about both worlds so much that it really helped me understand who I am and embrace all of it. You know, I don't have to be just Canadian or just Mexican. I don't have to be one or the other. I don't have to exist in one world or the other. And in that, I found such joy in just finding myself and my identity. And hopefully that is the heart of my next book, Working Title. Uh, and I woke up outside. There's a whole story about that. Yes. <laughs> Whereas Mangles and Snowflakes was more my grandparents and my parents. And I woke up outside would be my story, the refugee's daughter and, and the struggles we go through and how we kind of make mistakes along the way and and find our way through through it all. Excellent. Oh, wow. Okay. This has been amazing. I feel really, I feel, I don't want to say pumped. I just feel very, very, I'm in a good place. Okay. After hearing your guys' stories, thank you for sharing. So this was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good, good. So people check them out, check these books out. Okay. North Star Heart and Mangoes and Snowflakes and Sam Magazine is out. You can get it at Sam. It has its own uh, website, Sam, S-A-M hyphen yeah, sam-magazine.com. I will have a link on the Joanna Vanderflick website, as well as I will get links from both of these authors and have them in the show notes. Thank you very much, Natasha and Isis. Thank you. Thank you. 